Here's another Bible study from Calvary Chapel, Rochester. First Samuel, and we'll be studying chapter 25. As you turn there, I'll remind you that the Bible's got a lot of interesting stories in it. It really does, especially when you get into some of these historical books in the Old Testament. Uh, some of them are tragic, some of them are funny, uh, some of them are just great, almost made-for-Hollywood script type of stories. That's the type of story we're going to look at today. I'll remind you, though, that in the New Testament, Romans chapter 15, verse 4 says, For whatever things were written before were written for our learning that through patience and comfort of the scriptures, we might have hope. So everything written before, that whole Old Testament, has a purpose. Every story in there has, there's a reason, or there's reasons that God has it there. So keep that in mind as we kind of parachute into, I know you're, you're used to going verse by verse, chapter by chapter through a book of the Bible. We're going to parachute in here to this story for some, it may be a new story, but for most, I think it'll be a familiar story. Um, in fact, it's kind of a go-to story, especially in this age where more light has been shined on the area of uh, abuse and different uh, things in relationships, especially where there's toxic relationships that women get into. Uh, this is kind of a go-to story. Um, one of the places in scripture that really kind of brings some truth into those difficult situations. But while that's certainly part of the application of this story, there's a lot more in there. There's something for everybody here. All of us are going to find some real important applications as we look at this story. So by way of introduction, by, to get us up to speed here in, in just a three-minute bit, let's figure out where we are. Israel's in the land, okay? Post-Moses and Joshua has led the people into the land. After Joshua and they took possession of the land, what happened? They had these cycles of downward spiritual uh, degradation, really, where the people fell away from God, went after false gods, they cried out to God, God raised up judges. So that book of Judges is this cycle, several hundred years of ups and downs. Well, that book comes to a close, and that's what brings us to 1 Samuel. Samuel is a really interesting character. He's really a transitional character because he's the last of the judges. And things don't go real well, uh, although he provides some terrific leadership. The people cry out for a king. We want to be like the people around us. We want a king. And he's going, no, you don't. You really don't. <laughs> yeah, we do. We do. And God says to Samuel, no, let, let's, let's, let's give them what they want. So the first king that's anointed is Saul. Well, Saul, there's some problems there, right? He proves inadequate. While he's still leading, this young man, teenager most likely at the time, named David, is anointed to be king. We have this great victory that he has over Goliath. And Saul brings him into you know, his close, um, into his council, really. But what happens? Saul is jealous of David. 
eventually to the point where David flees. David's a young man. He's been anointed. He's going to eventually be king, but Saul's still king. (laughs) But what happens? The people say, well, Saul's killed his thousands, but David is tens of thousands. That jealousy that Saul has really creates incredible friction, and David feels like he has to flee for his very life. Okay? So that's the last third or half of the book of 1 Samuel. And that's why it's a transition. By the end of 1 Samuel, Saul is dead and gone. And then the process begins where David takes over the kingdom. So, okay, everybody got got your bearings? So they're the fugitive years. David is being pursued by Saul, first by himself, but then he gathers around himself a group of people, and you could call it the 3D army, right? These are the guys that are in debt. These are the people that are distressed. And these are the people that are discontented. Quite a bunch, right? The 3D army. But what do they turn into? There's an application right there. This bunch of fringe people turns into a band of very loyal followers. In fact, their bravery, their courage, and their valor is commended in the scriptures. So... These years for David are very (laughs) up and down. There's some incredible victories, there's some incredible things, but it's a transition time in David's life as well. Because while there's some great things that happen, (laughs) there's some real blunders. We will see this story is sandwiched between two of the highlights of these years. Twice, not once, but twice, where he has the opportunity to take Saul's life. Chapter 24, in the cave, he doesn't do it. He says, I can't kill the Lord's anointed. Chapter 26, in the camp. And he said, no, the Lord's going to have to take him, whether it's by old age or by in battle. But he said, I'm not going to be the guy to do it. And you go, wow, the guy is just relying on the sovereignty of God when he had the opportunity to take this guy out. <sighs> What's sandwiched in between there? Chapter 25. And it's really kind of a... Between those two peaks, it's a bit of a valley as far as David's behavior, David's responses. But, but in that, he shows us some things we can really learn from. Now, as we look at this story, keep in mind that this happens in 11th century B.C. southern Judea. There are some things we need to learn to, 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 to bring the full story out about the politics Not only this conflict between Saul and David, but also what was going on regionally. What about the geography? It's going to play a big part. What about the culture? It's going to play a big part. So watch that as we go. We're going to have to add some of that understanding in so that we get the full full picture. So with that, I remind you from verse 1 of chapter 25, 1 Samuel. Samuel died. Israelites gathered together, lamented for him, buried him in the home of Ramah, and David arose and went to the wilderness of Paran. Okay? So it's really a transition time. Saul's still on the throne. Now this stabilizing voice in Israel is dead, Samuel. David's on the run, fugitive, fleeing for his life. Kind of the whole country is really kind of unsure what's going to happen, what's going on. And they have conflicts from the outside as well. We'll talk about that in a minute. But that sets the stage for, for where we are. Where is this is happening in southern Judea. This parent will get into the, the specific uh, towns here in just a second. Verse 2. 
Now, there's a man in Maon whose business was in Carmel. That man was very rich. He had 3,000 sheep and 1,000 goats. He was shearing his sheep in Carmel. The name of the man was Nabal, and his wife, the name of his wife was Abigail. She was a woman of good understanding and beautiful appearance, but the man was harsh and evil in his doings. He was in the house of Caleb. Of course, Caleb settled in this area in the south of Judea. If you've got a Bible map in your head, or you need to look at Jerusalem, Bethlehem's below that, you get down to Hebron, below that. This is right south of Hebron, almost on your way to Beersheba. Okay? So it's hill country, it's the wilderness, it's rugged territory to some extent, but uh, that's, the, uh, that's the area we're in. Now it says Carmel here. Don't get confused with Mount Carmel, which is in the northwest of Israel, where Elijah's big uh, victory over the 400 prophets of Baal happened. Okay? Not the same Carmel. Just, just FYI for those of you like me who like to have a, a, a geography lesson in your head all the time as to what's going on. Okay? So three characters here, and I will add, don't miss the fourth in this story. Okay? Mention three key characters, yes, but there's a fourth here that will never even be named. <laughs> and there's some things he does that we want to be like him too. So David, like I said, interesting phase of his life. Some great things happen, some bad things happen. Great faith, great humility, great courage, great leadership. <sighs> Very erratic behavior, <laughs> great bloodshed, bad alliances, rash decisions. Okay, That's what's going on in David. Now, watch as we go through. Don't be afraid to admit that there might be a little bit of us in that. There's times when we take these great stands of faith, oh, praise the Lord, and there's other times, if you're anything like me, there's times when we make some rash decisions. And think about it. It may be these years. David's been anointed that he will eventually be king. He's not king yet. Okay? Maybe there's a little similarity to us. Have we been promised a kingdom? Have we, we will reign with him forever? Yes. Are there battles between now and then that we have to fight? Do we still have the flesh warring against the spirit in our lives? And sometimes we do great. Sometimes we make some rash decisions. And yeah, just, just throw that out there. Just keep that in mind. Some of what David's going through here, there may be some similarities to how we live our lives in the present, present day. Maybe you're not like me. <laughs> you go, no, I got that one down. I'm good. <laughs> we'll talk later. <laughs> okay, character number two here. Okay, Nabal. Nabal. Very wealthy. Very wealthy. But he's harsh. He's evil in his doings. In fact, later on in the text, we'll see that he's called a scoundrel. Now, his name means fool. Serious. I mean, that's what Nabal means. Folly is with him. It'll also go on to say that he listens to no one. He listens to no one. Now, people write about, okay, did his parents name him that? How did they know, you know, when the kid comes up? Oh, it looks like a fool to me. You know? <laughs> I doubt it. 
I doubt it could be that this was more of a nickname, you know, like the tall skinny guy is slim or, you know, the red-haired guy is, you know, red. It's more like, I don't know this, but I'm just putting it out there that Nabal became what he was known by because of his character. Just just putting it out there. Um, I mean, think about it, you know, who names their kid Judas or, or Jezebel these days, you know? There's just a... Some some biblical connotations there. We just kind of go. We're we're not going to do that. Likewise, we wouldn't name our kid fool. All right, character number three here, and and this is the real heroine of the story, Abigail. Abigail. She's got quite a bit going for her. She's got good understanding, and we will see that confirmed in our story in this account. Also, she's of beautiful appearance. Now, she's got such great insight. We will see humility. We will see generosity. We will see quick thinking. You have to ask the question, how'd she get married to that clown? I don't know. It's possible, and it was probably likely, it was an arranged marriage. Arranged marriages happened a lot in those days. Um, Maybe it was a choice. Maybe it was a choice. And again, this applies to today. People find themselves in marriages where there's just a lot of, ends up being a lot of sparks flying or a lot of friction. How do people get there? It happens. Arranged marriage or just choice or someone didn't see the whole picture. They say love is blind. Um, you know, For whatever reason, these things still happen today. Ladies find themselves married to a fool who listens to no one. And, and there's abusive relationships. Men find themselves, I'll, I'll have to throw this in here, men find themselves married to ladies who won't listen or, or won't receive any instruction or whatever, whatever it is. So, like I said before, this has kind of become the, the go-to chapter for toxic relationships. And, oh, Abigail, she's just this model. And she is. She, just, she provides an incredible example uh, of, of someone who, who stands strong and acts wisely in the situation. So, anyway, we'll leave it at that. Uh, and we'll get on to this request that really brings up this whole thing. Verse 4. When David heard in the wilderness that Nabal was shearing his sheep, David sent ten young men. David said to the young men, Go up to Carmel, go to Nabal, greet him in my name. And thus you shall say to him who lives in prosperity, Peace be to you, peace to your house, peace to all that you have. Now that I've heard that you have shears, your shepherds were with us, and we did not hurt them, nor was there anything missing from them all the while they were in Carmel. Ask your young men, and they'll tell you. Therefore, let my young men find favor in your eyes, for we come on a feast day. Please give whatever comes to your hand to your servants and to your son, David. So when David's young men came, they spoke to Nabal according to all these words in the name of David, and they waited. All right. What's going on here? Lots going on. we got to try to... Put some pieces together here to get a get a handle on this to see if was this a reasonable request? What is David requesting, and, and, and why? What what's going on? Here's where the cultural and the and the geography and the politics all all come in. Um, remember, David's got now 600 men. Okay, feeding them lunch is probably a pretty big deal. 
Okay? They're on the run, too. It isn't like, you know, they're, I mean, they're being sought out. They're hiding out in the wilderness. Now, I mean, obviously, a lot of people were loyal to David. He grew up in this region of uh, just north of there in the Bethlehem area. So people, and people knew him. People knew him. If, if David is, is slain as tens of thousands, his name was known. But they also knew that Saul was pursuing him. So, um, yeah, so there's a logistical issue here trying to feed 600 men. Later on, we'll see that uh, they actually resorted to pillaging David and this mighty band of 3D guys. But they did it outside of Israel. They pillaged other non-neighbors, uh, basically. So we have to try to, to discover, was this a reasonable request? Or was he saying, was he running some protection racket? Was he desperate to feed it? Were these guys turning on him? You don't get us some lunch today. You know, we're going to, you know, who knows? But it seems to be that when we look at these different factors, I think we'll arrive at the conclusion that, yeah, this is a reasonable request. Here's why. We got the political situation. Obviously, between Saul and David, there's this tension, this pursuit that's going on. We also have this situation complicated by the neighbors. You see, they're really on pretty much the boundary area of Israel at this time. Their arch rival, the Philistines, are immediately to the west. And we'll see that that tension has been going on and will continue to go on. They're the powerhouse in the region, and, and that's the major conflict. And that, of course, is how Saul will lose his life here in a few chapters. Right to the southwest, we have the Amalekites. To the south, we have the Edomites. And to the southeast, we have the Moabites. What would happen in any of these air fringe areas, these boundary areas? Well, those people, if they got hungry, they'd come up and raid <laughs> for food too. So was there a service that David actually provided with all these neighbors, with the, these threats from these outside neighbors? Absolutely. The other thing is the geography. While this is wilderness, it's hill country. Sheep were raised there in the 11th century BC, and they're still raised there today. And sheep in that area of the world, you can start out in, in a, you know, early springtime, and you can, you can get them grazing just about anywhere. But what happens as the months go on? Well, you've got to go seek out that pasture where it is. So these guys had to be on the road. Would David have known that? Of course he would have known that. He grew up doing this. He grew up watching sheep. So he knew that there were threats not just from the neighbors who might get hungry. There were animals in the wilderness that might get hungry. David killed lion and a bear, right? So David's men not only provided, even though it wasn't, there was no agreement to do this, they provided protection from the neighbors, and they provided protection from these animals. It's, in fact, it's, it's recorded not one animal was lost. That'd be pretty rare. I mean, well, I won't get into the agricultural pursuits of the 21st century, but losing an animal now and then is a very normal thing, I think, right? It, it happens. And so this guy's got 3,000 sheep and 1,000 goats, and he didn't lose any? That's pretty remarkable. That's pretty remarkable. All the more reason to celebrate. So then we got the culture. What time of year is it? Sheep shearing time. For sheep shearing, 
That's harvest time. That's payday. That's the biggie. Big cause of celebration. Later on, we'll read in 2 Samuel, when um, Absalom goes to kill his brother, what does he do? He has it done at this big festive time at sheep shearing time. It's in 2 Samuel. So it's a major, major celebration. It's a big deal. Very festive. And it isn't like David, it's very reasonable for David to have waited to now to say, hey, yeah, by the way, you know, your sheep are doing pretty good. You know, your flock is in pretty good shape. You know. Okay? So so I believe that, that as we look at, we bring in some of those additional factors, we see that this request is very reasonable. At first reading, you might ask that question, right? As you go through this and you read it out, you might go, Oh man, maybe maybe he's just desperate, you know. Maybe he's kind of trying to turn the screws on this guy to see if he can, you know, extort something out of him. But it's not the case, I believe, as we as we get those additional factors into consideration. Okay, let's see this wonderful wise man Nabal and how he responds in verse ten. Then Nabal answered David's servants and said, "Who is David? Who is this son of Jesse? There are many servants nowadays who break away each one from his master." Shall I then take my bread and my water and my meat that I have killed for my shears and give it to men whom I do not know where they are from? So David's young men turned on their heels and went back, and they came and told him, David, all these words. Nabal almost asks like he doesn't know who David is or really minimizes who David is, this son of Jesse he would have known exactly who David was. His wife sure knows who David is. We're going to find that out here in just a few verses. If David has killed his tens of thousands and Saul only his thousands, everybody knew who David was. But what does he do here? He insults him. He reviles him. Notice also, <laughs> he implies that David is rebellious. Oh, yeah, he's just out there. He's just breaking away from those in authority. So he really implies and adds to insult here that David is guilty of rebellion. Ah, but then I emphasized when I read, in, what does Nabal say? It's my sheep. It's my, everything's my, 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 my. And you, you can just... Uh, Say, well, that's kind of how we look at Nabal. All right, well, let's see how David responds. Verse 13. Then David said to his men, every man gird on his sword. So every man girded on his sword. David also girded on his sword. And about 400 men went with David and 200 stayed with the supplies. Now I'm going to take a little, uh, little trick here. and We're going to jump up to verse number 21. 21 and 22. Now David had said, Surely in vain I've protected all that this fellow has in the wilderness, so that nothing was missed of all that belongs to him, and he's repaid me evil for good. May God do so, and more also, to the enemies of David, if I leave one male of all who belong to him by morning light. So, David, this man that wouldn't touch Saul when he had an opportunity, even though Saul was threatening his life. Is this the bottle Don usually drinks out of? (laughs) 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 
<laughs> yeah, but there's some stuff floating on the top. And, uh, I'll be all right. No, you just kidding. It. I opened it. Don't worry. We get back into the text here. Yeah. So here's David. This is sandwiched in between these two great responses, recognizing the sovereignty of God. And he says, let's go kill everybody in that man's household, every male. Why would he say every male in the household be killed? That was kind of the custom at the time, to prevent future retaliation. You see it several times in the Old Testament. Wipe out every male so that somebody doesn't come back and take revenge later. I and mean, this is kind of like, you know, this probably would have prevented the Hatfields and McCoys, if you think about it. You know, if one would have entirely wiped out the other side, then they wouldn't go at it for generations. But just, just saying the rationale there was cultural, why he says, let's go wipe out every male. Because if we just wipe out him, they could come and get us, sneak up on us and get us. That's, that's the thinking, it was the norm. Was it the right thing for a godly man, especially the one who's anointed to be king of Israel, to do? Clearly not. Clearly not. He's going to take it into his own hands. The Bible consistently throughout, Old Testament, New Testament, all throughout, reinforces the idea that vengeance is mine, says the Lord. I will repay, is what the Lord says. And yet that's what David is doing here. He's taking it into his own hands. And he's going to bring vengeance about. This is an important application in the story here, folks. You may have great mountaintop experiences in your walk with the Lord, but there's other situations where we lose our temper and we lose our perspective. And whether it's verbally, you know, maybe, you know, we're not mad because they didn't feed 600 people lunch and we're going to go kill the whole guy's household. Most of us probably haven't made that threat. But when something doesn't go our way, there's times when we suddenly start, whether it's name calling or I'm going to get him, or we, and we don't have a godly response, right? The spirit is willing, the flesh is weak. And, and this side of eternity, we all have that battle that's, that's laid out for us in the book of Galatians, right? That whole thing of we're going to walk in the flesh, we're going to walk in the spirit. David is walking in the flesh here, okay? Just that, that, that's what's going on. And uh, even though he's shown some great and mighty things prior, doesn't mean, I mean, the next day, we all have to get up tomorrow. You can have a great day today. You still got to get up tomorrow and you got to say, Lord, fill me with your spirit. Help me to walk in your spirit and help me not to lose my cool or have a wrong response, whatever it might be. So David provides a lesson in the, in the negative here, but he provides a lesson for all of us that we never know what's going to happen that we're going to have a rash response to. Even if we're wronged, even if we're completely 100% right, our response can be wrong. And that's what he shows us here. All right. All right, here's where the Hollywood script kicks in here. Let's see intervention come. Verse 14 in our text. Now one of the young men told Abigail, Nabal's wife, saying, Look, David sent messengers from the wilderness to greet our master, and he reviled them. But the men were very good to us, and we were not hurt. Nor did we miss anything as long as we accompanied them when we were in the fields. They were a wall to us both night and day, all the time we were with them keeping the sheep. Now therefore, know and consider what you'll do, for harm is determined against our master and against all his household. For he is such a scoundrel that one cannot speak to him. 
So here, this guy who happens to know Nabal, it sounds like he's a key employee in the household, doesn't say he's a son, but he was out in the field, he knows Nabal, he knows Abigail, he seeks out Abigail and says, ah, Mrs. Boss, we got to do something and fast, okay? But he makes it sound like the, the shepherds actually sought out David's men and said, hey, you know what, guys, this is going to go good, we just hang around these guys, what do we got to worry about? You know, no one's going to mess with them. A bunch of 3D guys, you know. No neighbor of, no, you know, no neighboring tribe, no neighboring village is going to come against these clowns. You know, nobody's going to mess with them. So, this is the hero that I said did not get named in the story. This guy has the courage to say, enough is enough. I've got to step into this situation and I've got to say something to somebody. And he goes, we never even learn his name. Folks, as Christians, your name may never be widely known. But you know what? Doing the right thing is always the right thing to do. Okay? This is an important lesson here. No matter who we are, we may never get named. You may never, you know, but he was in that place. He had that information and he just said, I've got to do something. Because otherwise, there's going to be a lot of people dead real soon if I don't intervene, if I don't uh, step into this situation. Now, he doesn't go to Nabal. You may make a comparison there to the Proverbs about talking talking to a fool in the midst of his folly. So I I think that's probably the application of this. Um, he, He doesn't go because no one will listen to him. He's a scoundrel, right? So... Um, I think this guy gives us an example of what Paul said to the Ephesians in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 15. Walk circumspectly. The word circumspectly, you can figure out from the word, means you're aware of everything going on around you. That would, that's what it means to walk circumspectly. You're aware of all these things. Well, this guy was well aware. He knew what had gone on in the field. He knew what had gone on when these men came to ask Nabal for, you know, hey, you know, wouldn't, wouldn't mind being involved in your celebration here. He knew Abigail well enough. He was walking circumspectly, and he said, it's time for me to step in, and he does. And I commend him, even though we never learned his name. All right, intervention part B is Abigail, verse 18. Then Abigail made haste, took 200 loaves of bread, two skins of wine, five sheep already dressed, five sias of roasted grain, 100 clusters of raisins, and 200 cakes of figs. Loaded them on donkeys. She said to her servants, go on before me. See, I'm coming after you. But she did not tell her husband Nabal. So as it was, as she rode on the donkey, that she went down under cover of the hill, and there was David and his men coming down towards her, and she met them. It's life and death. She recognizes it. She springs into action. Remember, we were told early on she had good judgment. And here she uses her judgment. Did you notice that the food was already prepared? Okay? So so that kind of supports the idea that David's request was not unreasonable at all. They were planning on a big celebration. There was a lot of food here. And so she grabs it, I mean, especially those uh, 
200 cakes of figs. I mean, come on. Some will question here why she doesn't go tell her husband. She doesn't intervene and go to him and say, dude, what did what, you tell these guys? You know, come on. Others affirm her urgency to intervene in this way without telling her husband just because they would make the case that, you know what, she knew her husband. The situation was so far gone that she probably very rationally but very quickly just realized, I don't think it's, he, he's, not, he's not listening to me to the point where he'll, he'll change his mind. So she shows urgency here. And, folks, there is a time for urgency. I know most places in the Bible that encourages don't, don't make a hasty decision and all that kind of thing, right? But this is an exception. This is a life or death situation. And there's times in life and death situations where urgency is, is demanded of us. And that's why we learn as we walk with the Lord that, you know, we, we say, okay, Lord, if you give me the strength each day, I'll know when it's time to be urgent. It's usually the exception. But in this case, I, I would affirm that I, you know, not telling Nabal seems to be the right, the right choice. Okay, then we get this picture of this uh, interaction between her and David and his men. Verse 23. Now when Abigail saw David, she dismounted quickly from the donkey, fell on her face before David and bowed to, down to the ground. So she fell at his feet and said, On me, my lord, on me let this iniquity be. And please let your maidservant speak in your ears. Hear the words of your maidservant. Please let not my Lord regard this scoundrel Nabal, for as his name is, so is he. Nabal is his name, and folly is with him. But I, your maidservant, do not see the young man of my Lord whom you sent. Now therefore, my Lord, as the Lord lives, and as your soul lives, since the Lord has held you back from coming to bloodshed, and from avenging yourself with your own hand, now then, let your enemies and those who seek harm for my Lord be as Nabal. And now this present which your maidservant has brought to my Lord, let it be given to the young men who follow my Lord. Please forgive the trespass of your maidservant, for the Lord will certainly make for my Lord an enduring house, because my Lord fights the battles of the Lord. Evil is not found in you throughout your days. Yet a man has risen to pursue you and seek your life, but the life of my Lord shall be bound in the bundle of the living with the Lord your God. And the lives of your enemies he shall sling out as from the pocket of a sling. And it shall come to pass when the Lord is done for my Lord according to all the good that he's spoken concerning you. And he has appointed you ruler over Israel that this will be no grief to you nor offensive heart to my Lord. Either that you've shed blood without cause or that my Lord has avenged himself. But when the Lord has dealt well with my Lord, then remember your maidservant. Wow, what a humble plea. What a beautiful picture of humility, of personal responsibility, and great courage, and great faith. Did you notice that? She knew full well the call that was on David's life to lead her people, her, 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 the, the people of Israel. She knew that. It's important that if we're going to get in a situation like this or find ourselves in any kind of a situation where we need to make a quick decision, it's a really good idea to be well-versed on what God has said, folks. She's standing on what God has proclaimed. She's not just out there thinking, boy, it would sure be nice if it happened this way. Okay? 
She's standing in what God has declared. And she has a confidence and a faith that God will do what he said he will do. Did anybody notice there, though, the reference to the sling? Did you see that? She knew full well the story of David and Goliath, didn't she? She kind of inserts that one to just kind of confirm that, you know, if David, if you're not getting this, this one should really kind of ring a bell for you. That she uses that reference, I believe it's in verse 29. Uh, the, the lives of your enemies he shall sling out as from the pocket of a sling. I get a chuckle out of that one, too. It's just like, wow, this gal, she is, it's like preach it, girl. I mean, she is really, she's really bringing it. In humility, with great faith and a full knowledge of what God has said, she's the hero, right? I mean, that's what most everybody who reads this account, she's the hero, and I don't want to take anything away from her because she truly is. Not just her actions, but also... For her character, for her character, it shines very brightly here. Uh, David Gusick calls this sweet speaking submission. She didn't come down to David and said, you knucklehead, what are you doing? You know, do you realize you could forfeit the whole kingdom? I mean, who's going to follow you if you just fly off the handle and go kill a bunch of people? She didn't do that. She came totally in humility even though she was in the right and he had made a very questionable proclamation there. Yeah, sweet speaking submission. She was looking out for the best for everyone. And some would say maybe even herself. Was she at the point in her life where she knew Nabal's foolishness was going to catch up with him sooner or later and it might be sooner? And then she says something like, oh, when you come into the kingdom... Uh, <clears throat> don't don't forget me. <laughs> I, you don't know. It's you know people will write about this and speculate. Was you know was she already pretty well saying this is this I'm done with him. You know don't. By the way, don't forget me. Um, don't know. Uh, some some people would would put that forth. But. All right, let's see David's response. We pick it up in verse thirty-two. And David said to Abigail, Blessed is the Lord God of Israel who, who sent you this day to meet me. And blessed is your advice, and blessed are you, because you have kept me this day from coming to bloodshed and from avenging myself with my own hand. For indeed, as the Lord God of Israel lives, who has kept me back from hurting you, unless you had hurried and come to meet me, surely by morning light no males would have been left to Nabal. So David received from her hand what she had brought him and said to her, Go up in peace to your house. See, I have heeded your voice and respected your person. There's an important application right away here. We will all be wrong at times, sometimes foolishly, flying off the handle in an emotional situation. David doesn't fight this at all. He acknowledges her role, and he says, praise the Lord. We need to recognize the sovereignty of God, even when it brings correction to us. Should I repeat that? We need to recognize the sovereignty of God, because that's what he's doing. He sure thanks her, but he more than anything sees, whoa, the Lord has protected me from doing something really foolish. 
And so he just assumes this posture right away. He sees his error and he praises God. And I think that's an important lesson for us. Most of us, if you're, if you're like me, I'm assuming a little bit anyway, it takes me a while to cool down if I kind of, somebody irks me, somebody does all these wrong things to me. And it's not the easiest thing to just throw that switch off and just say, well, you're right. You know, I, I, I shouldn't, shouldn't respond that way. There may be times in our lives, folks, if we're, if we're regularly saying, Lord, I trust you, guide me, <laughs> guard my ways, protect me in every way. There's times where he may send someone to intervene and confront you when you're about to lose your cool or have lost your cool and before you act out further on it. It may be sovereign intervention on your behalf that God is answering an earlier prayer that you put up saying, Lord, protect my way. We have to recognize that, that God can work in that way. And so it's a real good idea to find a way to turn that switch off quickly and just say, you know what, thank you. Thank you for saying that. Not easy to receive. Hurt feelings, insults, false accusations, wrongfully treated. Yeah, check them all. David, David experienced all of those here. But his response was dead wrong. And he knows, he, he knows it. He knew it at the time. Remember some things about David's character, right? You think about his life. David was a rather impulsive guy, right? Sees the giant Goliath. He's a teenager. Oh, I'll go get him. You know? so everybody's going, what? You're just a kid. You don't realize who you're dealing with. Well, that impulsiveness was based in a faith in the living God. And we, you know, we raise him up for that. But there's other times when his impulsiveness got him into other trouble as well. I won't cite all the examples, but his personality was one of being rather impulsive. So, but he does remember, and this is an important one here. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. The Lord will repay. He does remember that. He knows it and he remembers it. Okay, verse 36 now Abigail went to Nabal. There he was, holding a feast in his house like the feast of a king. And Nabal's heart was merry within him, for he was very drunk. Therefore she told him nothing, little or much, until morning light. So it was in the morning when the wine had gone from Nabal, and his wife had told him these things, that his heart died within him, and he became like a stone. Then it happened after about ten days that the Lord struck Nabal, and he died. So it looks like either a heart attack or a stroke, something of that nature. <laughs> but she waits. She uses good judgment again. Says, well, talking to a drunk fool, you know, talking to a fool is one thing. Talking to a drunk fool is, you know, he's not going to get anywhere. So she waits till the next morning, lays it all out. Here's what we did. And he basically has a heart attack and, you know, dies a few days later. Or stroke, one of the two, most likely. But you know, I'm sure in a medical community, somebody might have a more specific um, statement to put on the on the on the coroner's report. But Nabal's demise. Okay, so she wisely waits, and we realize that just us reading the text, what who brings about Nabal's demise? The Lord. It's right there right there the Lord struck Nabal and he died the Lord did it the Lord can keep us from doing harm and doing wrong if we will listen if we'll be sensitive to how he speaks to us 
Nabal is a picture of a, of a person who totally rejects God, right? Somebody who stubbornly won't listen to anybody, right? That, that's how he's described. Utterly rejects God. And that's the gospel, folks. We're all sinners. We're all in need of that correction and ultimately that forgiveness that's found in Christ. People say, how could a loving God send anybody to hell? Well, I don't think he'll just send them there. I think they'll choose that by the rejection of those offers, those opportunities to find forgiveness in Christ. The people who end up there will be those that utterly reject and won't listen to anyone, won't listen to the Holy Spirit, won't listen to the scriptures, won't listen to the believer who shares their faith. Okay, So Nabal is a picture of those who utterly reject God. Might be that Jesus had him in mind in the parable in uh, Luke 12, the man who said, look at all that I got, I'm rich, I'm going to build bigger barns, and he tore them down. And what's, it, what's the conclusion to that? You fool. How do you know that this, this very day your life will be required of you? Ecclesiastes 9.12, man knows not his time. This was Nabal's day. It's all done. Thankfully, we have a loving God in heaven, our creator, who's patient. He's not willing that any should perish, but all should come to repentance. And he gives opportunities for people to turn to him. For many people, it's many times. But ultimately, that day will come. It's appointed for men to die once, and then comes judgment. Ultimately, everybody has to face the God who created them. And will we be in that state of finding forgiveness and grace in Jesus, or will we be those like Nabal who utterly reject the Lord? If you've never made that decision, I, boy, I'd strongly encourage you, today's a great day for that. Just make that decision to say, Lord, I can be, not totally, but I can be a little bit like David. <laughs> I, I am I'm in, need in for, need of forgiveness. And, and make today the day if you've never done that. Don't be like Nabal. The older you get, the harder it becomes. So, All right, wrap up the story, verse 39. So when David heard that Nabal was dead, he said, Blessed be the Lord who has pleaded the cause of my reproach from the hands of Nabal and has kept his servant from evil. For the Lord has returned the wickedness of Nabal on his own head. And David sent and proposed to Abigail to take her as his wife. When the servants of David had come to Abigail at Carmel, they spoke to her saying, David sent us to you to ask you to become his wife. She be, and she arose, bowed her face to the earth and said, Here is your maid servant, servant to wash the feet of your servants of my Lord. So Abigail rose in haste, rode on a donkey, attended by five of her maidens, and she followed the messengers of David and became his wife. David also took Ahinoam of Jezreel, so both of them were his wives, but Saul had given Michael, his daughter, David's wife, to Palti, the son of Laish, who was from Galim. And we're not going to spend a whole lot of time talking about this, other than to say, wait a minute, God approving polygamy there in the Old Testament? It was common. It's common amongst even the men that we talk about, men of renown, like, uh, what's that guy's name? Jacob? Let's see, he ended up with four of them, right? And a whole bunch. Of, how'd that go? How, how'd that go when there was multiple wives? Show me a situation in scripture where it went well with more than one wife. I can't think of any. Okay? Go back to Genesis chapter 2. 
What's God's order? A man, singular, shall leave his father and mother, cleave to his wife, singular, okay? That's the order in scripture. And that's what Jesus quotes in Matthew 19. That's marriage, okay? Marriage is clearly defined in scripture. People say, well, Jesus never spoke out against homosexuality. He didn't have to. He quoted from Genesis 2 saying, this is marriage. One man singular, one woman singular. That's it. He defined marriage for us right there, okay? So when we try to answer or feel like we have to answer for David's multiple wives, we just go, you know, they did it back then. Didn't go real well for David, right? His household was a mess. His household was a mess. So was Jacob's, you know, when you think about it. By God's grace, we still have them in the line of the Messiah and all that, but still, show me any case in Scripture where, where polygamy worked and worked well, and, and we'll have an interesting discussion. Okay, bring some of these observations together. The role of women, obviously culturally, you know, there was, there was something to be said, um, but there are some strong women in the Old Testament stood up at times, and whether it's Deborah or um, one of my personal favorites, J.L., right? She had that guy pegged, right? That's, that's a joke. Um, and Abigail's another one, you know? But she never steps out of bounds, so to speak. You know, she steps boldly. She steps in faith. Uh, she steps, you know, in, in every way wisely, and yet there's so much humility and there's so much correctness in how she acts. Um, yeah. Was she wrong for not telling Nabal what was going on? I believe this is an exception. This is an exception. Uh, obviously, it shouldn't be something as, ah, she never talked to her husband, so I'm free to go shopping, you know, or whatever. You know, he's a fool, you know. He's laying there watching football, you know. So, no, no, I'm not saying that. So we don't know how bad it was, but you can get the picture. It was bad. Even I mean, if his employee calls him a scoundrel, she says, well, the guy's a scoundrel, he won't listen to anybody. So it was not good. So let's be careful not to overuse this as an exception. Uh, spouses, both ways, by the way, do act foolishly at times. Um, David's request, um, initially in the story, I believe it was reasonable. Um, you know, I, I really do. I don't think he was, you know, playing mafia boss here and, and trying to really tighten the screws on the neighbors by getting something that he didn't deserve or didn't have coming. He didn't specify what he wanted. He just said, hey, you know, it's feast time. You know, wouldn't mind, you know, sharing with the boys here. Um, what do you say? I mean, he was pretty polite in how he brought about that request. So. All right, let's have some applications. Ladies, number one application, don't marry some guy because he's got a thousand goats, okay? <laughs> Not the reason. Okay? And men, don't make a marriage proposal by sending your friends. Do it in person. <laughs> well, they're both in there, right? I mean, you know, we can see that. Now, 1 Samuel's a book of transitions, right? Transitions for Israel, going from the time of the judges to, to uh, true, the true king, David, the king who would have his line on the throne forever, right? And that's King Jesus. That's what the whole Bible ends up with Jesus coming back, Jesus on the throne. He's in the line of, of David. So it's a, it's a book of transition. David's in transition as well. Folks, we're all in transitions. We're all transitioning. 
Bible says in first in Second Corinthians three eighteen, we all with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, we're being transformed into the image from glory to glory, just as by the Spirit of the Lord. And Romans twelve two, most all of you know this one or have heard this. Don't be conformed to the world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you can prove what is that good and perfect and acceptable will of God. Okay. If you're a believer, God's goal for you is to continue to grow and to grow to maturity. That's what he wants to do. It's a transition. And as I mentioned, Galatians 5 gives us that struggle we'll have on this side of eternity with our fallen nature bumping into that new nature all the time. Okay, It's a matter of which one are you going to you know, allow to, to, to dominate your decisions and, and your thoughts. So. David is progressing. Interesting, in 2 Samuel 7, towards the end of his life, the Lord tells him, Thus says the Lord, I took you from the sheepfold, from following the sheep, to be ruler over my people, over Israel. And I've been with you wherever you've gone, cut off your enemies from before you, and have made you a great name like the name of the great men of the earth. Some have put forth that there was an intermediate step in there. He went from a shepherd boy. Here, what's he doing in this account? He's watching over shepherds. And then ultimately, he's watching over the whole nation of Israel, God's people. See the transition there? So David is growing into this role from the shepherd boy. And there's a real important, a lot of pictures in scripture about sheep and shepherding and all that. But God reminds him at the end of his life, hey, you know, you see the path that you were on? And this is an important step in that path. God was watching out for him. He was, in a sense, he was willing to be interrupted. David had set a course. Yeah, it was a foolish one. Yeah, it was a rash one. Was he wronged? Probably. But he made this foolish proclamation. God saw fit to see him interrupted. And he was willing to listen and be interrupted. There's times, folks, when we need to be willing to let the Lord interrupt us. To get off our our single-minded focus, even though we might be right, we might be really pursuing something that's not the best. So um, we can't let emotion, anger, rash decisions um, derail what God is wanting to do in us. Obviously, it may not be this extreme. You know, Maybe you're not threatening to kill someone's whole household, uh, just them. Um, but it's the same principle. It's the same principle. Now, Abigail certainly provides a notable example of confronting someone in the most humble way, right? Someone's steaming mad. Anybody have any experience trying to confront someone who's steaming mad? There's a a pretty, yeah, odds aren't good that it's going to go well, right? Because then they'll just get steaming mad at you. But she does give us a great example of bringing that, the truth, Based in God's word, what has God proclaimed, bringing it humbly, even offering to say, hey, it's my fault. You know, I, I, I should have been there. I should have intervened. I should. <laughs> All with faith, and she still allows God to be fully in control. The other thing here is, before you jump to conclusions, understand the context, both in the story and in our interaction with people. I tried to give you some examples that the context of this story was enriched by us understanding everything from the geography and the culture and the politics of the situation. 
And, and obviously the background, what had happened up to this point in the book of 1 Samuel and what was going to happen afterward in David's life. So understanding context may be kind of a circuit breaker for us so we don't blow our cork or get mad or you know, yeah, be that guy that's steaming mad unnecessarily. Um, and, and in some cases, maybe this is a good illustration, we need an off-ramp. Sometimes we're, we're going down the expressway, you know, at this well above the speed limit, and it's time to get off that, you know, and we need an off-ramp. And maybe it's even like in some of those mountain states. Anybody ever see that where they have the runaway truck ramp or the, the you know, for the, it's for the trucks that their brakes go out? They go down these hills and they got this, I mean, it turns up and maybe there's a gravel pile there or something. Sometimes we need that runaway truck ramp to go, because that, that's really what God did here in my estimation. I mean, David was, he was full speed ahead and there was going to be bloodshed. It was going to be a slaughter. And uh, God intervened. So sometimes we need that and need to recognize that God may be providing a little bit of an off-ramp for us before we make a fool out of ourselves. Faith has an immediate component. Like I said, most of the time we're to be not hasty in our decisions, we're to pray through decisions, all that kind of stuff. But faith also has an urgency at times. Faith is always far-sighted. Did you notice in Abigail's description of what David had ahead in his life? It was very far-sighted. She knew that God's hand was on David to be king over Israel. She saw the big picture, folks. Let's not miss the big picture. We serve a God in heaven. We will reign with him forever. Okay? One day he's going to return. Could be soon. Might be a while. Things, things are ugly in America at times. Ups and downs. They may get uglier. Okay? But let's be people of faith who can act in the urgent, but yet we are far I'm not say far-sighted like the cartoon. Far-sighted. Okay? Let's be far-sighted in our in our faith. Patience is vital. Trusting in the sovereignty of God is a really, really important lesson. Hard to wait for his timing? Sure. Ultimately, we're in the best place when we can say, we can look back and say, the Lord, Lord did it. We need to recognize the sovereignty of God in all these situations. God's working in all of our lives, folks. It's a matter of whether we're resisting him or we're allowing, we're yielding and allowing him to work. Transitions are always taking place. It's a matter of in the turbulence, in the victories, in the highs and the lows, do we walk in faith or do we let our emotions get the best of us? Let's stay sensitive to the Lord, his word, his spirit's leading and convicting. That way when the events turn suddenly we can see him work rather than take things into our own hands. Taking revenge, even if it's against a fool, can only make us the fool. Okay? I close with uh, Ephesians 5.15. Walk circumspectly, not as fools, but wise, redeeming the time because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be unwise, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Let's pray.